You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. So if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And what I want to do today is um, I want to take some time because it has been a few weeks. I'm going to take a lot of time to review just kind of get caught up and so because I want to fit what we're going to look at today in the context of the whole book. So you'll bear with me while we do that. But if you would, look at verse 12 with me, Colossians chapter 3. Paul's writing and he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive each other, even as... If you have any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach one another. And admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, again, let me kind of give you some of the background and catch you back up. Colossians was a book written uh, in the early 60s, more than likely, by Paul to a group of believers in a, in a city called Colossae that was located in Asia Minor in a valley in an area called the Lycos Valley. The Lycos Valley had three larger cities in it, uh, Herophilus, Laodicea, and Colossae. Colossae was the least significant of the big cities in that valley. It's sort of a more insignificant city that it was written to. And so we don't know a lot about Colossae but what we, from history, but what we do know for sure about their religious background is these people were what we call animists. And animists were people that believed basically that everything that happened was because of a spirit. They were very energized by an awareness of the spiritual world. They were very energized by awareness that there's a supernatural realm and that if something happened, they would usually equate it to a God or the activity of a God. So as a result, they were polytheistic. They were pluralistic. And part of their religion was really finding out what do we have to do to make the gods happy? What do we have to do to keep them from raining fire down on us? Or what do we have to do to appeal to them in such a way that they would bless us? And this is kind of the the mindset they had about spirituality. And so any God they could make happy, they would go after. And so Paul's writing to these people and he's really trying to clarify to them what Christianity believes. What are the core values of the Christian faith? And so he's writing, and he, he, it's a really cool book to read because it's very basic. It hits very big topics, and it, it's very uh, 
great language and how he explains these things. And one of the first things Paul opens up with in chapter 1, and he just says right up the bat, hey, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. I want you to be filled, crammed, overflowing with a knowledge of God's will. And he talks about how important that is. That's a catalyst. And he lists a lot of really incredible things that will happen in our lives if we're filled with the knowledge of God's will. If we are learning, if we are setting aside time to, to understand Scripture and learn truth and, and, and think about why it's true, understand it and, and get it. And he, he goes through, I'm just praying you'll do this. And he says, if you'll do this, you'll do something. The consequence of being filled with the knowledge of his will is that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's a, it's a real simple relationship here. He says, you know, if you'll commit yourself to studying and knowing and learning God's word, you will live a life out that really pleases God. You, you'll, you'll, you'll live this thing out. That's the key to it. And he repeats this all throughout this book over and over again. This is a truth, and we're going to see it in this chapter we just read. He over and over again emphasizes the importance of knowing, learning, understanding the word of God. Our religion, our faith... Christianity us cannot just be an emotional experience we have, a series of emotional experiences, a series of happy feelings. It has to be a point where we are learning, we're getting into the bedrock of truth, and just like a building, if it's going to be built and last, it has to dig down deep in the earth. I mean, you and I have to dig down deep at some point. And learn and understand and, and, and assimilate these truths into our life. And this is what Paul prays over and over again for these people. Then he goes on and he, he really in the first chapter hits a couple truths that are real important that you and I understand. One is he explains in no, in unequivocal terms, with all kind of rich imagery and all kind of cool language, that Jesus Christ is God. He clarifies that he is the creator, that he is all of God. And he goes through all these really cool ways of explaining it, but he basically lays out the point for you and I that Jesus is God. And then he goes through and he tells you why that's important. He talks about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and in, in his body, he sort of absorbed the sins of the whole world. Now, why is it important if he's going to die for our sins and take away the sin of humanity? Why is it important, it's so important that he be God? And why do we believe that? And, and what we find out is, is simply this. To be able to pay off the human moral debt of, of the co collective sin of humanity, a perfect human being couldn't do that. Now, a perfect human being could pay for one of our sins. A perfect sinless human being could pay for the sins of one other perfect sinless human being. But to collectively pay off the sin of the entire human race, it would take something a lot greater. And God is that something a lot greater. So we understand this. In Jesus, God was sort of depositing his currency and his worth into human currency 
in humanity so he could die and take away the sin of humanity. That's how we understand it. And the Bible says, Colossians teaches, that because of that sacrifice, you and I, every one of us, stand before God. If we're believers, if we've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, we stand before him holy and blameless and without a blemish. And it's not because you're a good guy. It's because he's a great God. And that sacrifice on the cross and that blood that spilled out was God's blood. And it washes and cleanses away all of our sin. There's an old hymn that says there is a fountain that flows from Emmanuel's veins. Emmanuel's a title for Christ in the book of Matthew. It means God with us. There is a fountain that flows from Emmanuel's veins. God with us veins. And it says sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stains. What a, what a powerful truth. All. Now, do you believe that about yourself? If you're a Christian here, do you believe all your guilty stains have been washed away, have been cleaned? That's a very powerful truth. And this is what Paul's emphasizing in this letter in the first chapter. These are big truths. And then he goes on, he closes out the chapter one, the doctrinal part, and he talks about Christ being in you, being able to empower you. And that's a powerful truth, that Jesus Christ can dynamically live within us and empower us to live differently. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, he goes through and he talks about different errors that were going on. There were different cultural errors that were going on. There were different errors that were emerging within the church he was correcting. And he goes through that in chapter 2. And his big deal is basically this. He says, as you've received Christ as Lord, I want you to walk it out. He's basically going to get into this. How can we who have received Jesus as our Lord walk out a commitment to him being Lord of our life? And that's what chapter 2. And then he gets into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he explains this. Us walking out what we believe. And he uses kind of a clothing metaphor. In the beginning of chapter 3, he talked about taking off the old self. It's like taking off a dirty garment. He talked about, you know, sexual sins. He talked about, you know, sins of anger and, and, and relational sins. And he says, look, take those things off. Greed, he mentions in there. Take off the old dirty garment. Just like if you went out and worked in the fields or you went and worked out at a gym and your clothes are all sweaty and dirty and nasty and you went and took a shower you would not put the same clothes on. Is that correct? You'd want to put on clean clothes. So this is what we want to look at now. What are the clean clothes that we put on? If we, if we take off these old clothes of sin and our old life, what are the new clothes we put on? This is what he's talking about here in chapter 3. He's finishing this thought. What are the new garments we put on? And let's just walk through this passage briefly. I want to show you a couple things that are in each verse so we can get an understanding of his flow of thought. And then I just want to summarize it up with one, one quick thought. But let's look at verse 12. Here's how Paul says it. Therefore, as God's dearly loved or chosen people, holy, and he uses this word, dearly loved, dearly loved. This is how he wants you and I to understand ourselves. God's chosen people. That simply means we are the people God has chosen to express himself to, through to a lost and a dying world. People can look at us, his desire is he looks at us and they go, that's what it means to belong to Christ. That's what it means to belong to God. 
He wants us to represent him and replicate him in, in this life. His chosen people, you're holy. And he uses this really cool description here after that. Dearly loved. Dearly loved. And what that simply means is this. Dearly loved means that it means to make somebody's heart swell with pride. What an incredible thought that it is possible as God's children, as God's people, to make his heart swell with pride the way a child would, a parent would over his child, swell with pride. And, and he's communicating something here that's really important. God is for you. And make God's experience of being for you a great experience. When I was a, a, a young dad and I had two boys, I uh, had one big aspiration for my boys. And it wasn't that they'd be good or they'd be smart or whatever. It was that they'd be great athletes. <laughs> I'm being just really honest with you here. <clears throat> I thought they'd probably do good in school and I, raised in the church. I, they, hopefully gonna, that was going to stick. But I, I was, because I felt pretty comfortable about those two. I, I really wanted, uh, I really wanted great athletes, you know, and, um, you know, my, uh, and I had two boys and, and, you know, you're always, your two kids are different. My second born had a charmed life when it came to sports. You know, he was a, all area linebacker. He was on great teams, great, everything which worked out. He was on, played baseball for three years and his team never lost a game. Everything went great for him. Now, my firstborn had a little different journey with sports. It just wasn't his thing. And, and I remember, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, baseball. We, we played a couple years of baseball and he went two years and couldn't hit the ball. And literally never hit the ball in two years. <laughs> and, um, and so the third year, my oldest team was getting this team together, and, it was, and they were going to play at a new park. And, of course, they never lost a game. And so they were all – and I was like, good. And I thought, well, maybe he won't play this year because baseball is a drag to have to go to all the games. You parents that are doing that now understand. And, um, and I remember um, – uh, he wanted to play another year. And I was like, okay, so we'll play at this new park. And there was this guy who was a great coach. I could tell you all the story. I don't want to spend all morning with it. But um, their coach was this guy, Barry. He was an ex-Marine. Uh, he just, he said, he's, oh, he's going to be a great hitter. And he'd watch, and he just, he worked with him. And he told me, take him to the batting cage. And I spent a fortune at the batting cage because I did want him to be good. And so we kept, and finally, I remember before the season was up, he got to where he could hit. I remember he hit the first foul ball. And I was like, oh, my God, he hit a ball, foul ball. And he would, uh, his coach would make him swing. He would tell the ump, call strikes if he doesn't swing. You know, he just, he just forced him to be good. And as he kept going on, he started getting base hits. And he had a good team, and they played in this tournament. And uh, they were... Late in the game and in this big tournament, and Daniel caught up, and he hits. They were down by a run. It's in the last inning. He hits a two-run single and wins the game. 
And then the next day, the championship game, he does it again. Two game-winning hits back-to-back. Now, I will tell you this. I was always for my son when he came to bat. I wanted him to get a hit. I wanted to get a home run. Every time he came to bat, I was for him. But he made my experience of being for him a lot more enjoyable. When he worked hard (laughs) and he believed and he applied himself and he came through in the clutch. And, and this is true in your life. And this is something very serious, though. Is that, I mean, there's a God who is, in, God is investing his emotions in your life. You're a dearly loved child. He's making an investment. I am going to invest emotional capital in your life, in what you do, the outcome of your life. And you and I need to make that experience a great experience for God. Make that a great experience for God. That he would do that. Make it a great experience. And this is what Paul's going to sort of unpack here. How do we do that? How as dearly loved children do we make this a great God? The, God's experience of you. How do you make it worthwhile and enjoyable and, and, and a thrill for him? And let's, let's keep looking here. Chapter 3. Clothe yourselves, verse 12, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Here's something really important to do here. If you and I are going to be Christians and we're going to walk with God for the long haul, I'm going to tell you something you have to do. You have to be committed to forgive. And the commitment Jesus said you and I need to make in terms of forgiving others is one that is, and I'll, I'll just, it's in one word. It's got to be absolute. Absolute. There is, forgiveness is powerful. There's an old saying that forgiveness is the idea is you, when you forgive, you're setting somebody free and you discover that that somebody is yourself. Being a, a dearly loved child of God, being a Christian, being a believer is to make a commitment to absolutely forgive. Just the same way God has absolutely forgiven you. To forgive absolutely. And he goes on here. In verse 14, and he says, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Back in those days, you've probably seen movies of, uh, they would, when they would go out, they would basically, um, in the old days, they would layer their clothes a lot of times. If they were cold, they would layer it with different things, just like you and I would do. But there was always, the, the last thing put on was a robe, a big coat, and they would put a sash around it. You've seen this on TV, a sash. And the sash would just kind of hold everything together. And here's what Paul's saying, man, the, the love holds it all together. You know, be compassionate, be gentle, be forgiving. Be, but the bottom line is this, you've got to really love people. You've got to really genuinely, you can't just behave and pretend to be nice. <clears throat> really care about them. 
Because that holds it all together. So put this sash on in perfect unity. Verse 15, he goes on here. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And then he says, and be thankful. He says this, let what rule in your heart? Peace. The peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, the peace of Christ simply means a couple things. One, it means the idea that you and I know before God we have peace, that we are really right with him, that God's not angry with us, that his anger was taken out on the cross, his wrath, his judgment. We're in a situation where we're free from judgment from God and retribution and any type of retaliation. He's saying, look, let that reign in your heart, in your relationship with each other. And the word peace ruling in your heart, he really means basically let peace be the umpire. Let peace be the umpire. Whatever peace says, that's what we do. Let peace rule. Let peace transcend the relationships that you're in. Husband and wife, in your, in your marriage, let peace be the ruler of it. Let peace be the umpire. Don't use anger. And to manipulate your spouse to try to get your way. Let peace rule. In your relationships with one another, don't use anger and don't use, you know, defy, all these things that we do to manipulate. and get, Let peace rule. Let peace be the umpire. Let peace be in charge. And, and that's how we should, in our relationships with one another, whether it's in our marriage in our friendships and church activities, in things we're working on together, let peace be the umpire. It's the exact word he uses. It's the referee, the umpire of a contest. Let peace decide. Let peace reign. And then he goes on here, and in, in, in verse 16, he says, Let the message of Christ dwell richly among you as you teach one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And he just says, you know, there's this something else you want to keep doing. It's just your relationship with God. God's Word dwelling in you richly. Get a lot of God's Word in your heart. Get a lot of it in you. And then also worship Him. Sing to Him. Worship Him. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Commune with Him. But we don't have a personal relationship with the Bible. We have a personal relationship with a real living God who is wonderful, who has proportions and it's extraordinary. And he's saying, look, worship him, talk to him, describe him in songs, hymns, spiritual songs. Look at the Psalms and read those incredible descriptions of God to him and, 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 and connect with him. Connect with him. Stay connected. By his word dwelling in you and by worship and verbalizing uh, your love for him. And then the, the last thing he says here <clears throat> in verse 17, in whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do all, I say the word all, all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He says this, whatever you do. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
See, he's gone from telling us to personally spend time worshiping God, singing songs to him, and, and, and you know, hymns, and, the, and, and reading the Psalms to him, and all this. But then he goes, you can worship God privately, which is real important to do. You can worship God in a corporate worship service. But he says, you know what I want you to do? I want the way you live your life, whatever you do, I want you to sing a worship song to God with that. The way you do your job, I want it to be worship. Students, the way you study, the way you go about your schoolwork, I want it to be worship. I want you to honor God, worship him. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're involved with, one of the greatest things you and I can learn to do is to worship God in your work, worship God in your activities. There's a... a, a word that you'll read about in the Bible and you'll, you'll hear explained. There was a, a great book by Tim Keller about this topic, but the idea of, of, of having a calling, you know, when we think of a vocational calling, what do we think of? Somebody's got a calling as a vocation. What do we think of? Ministers, right? Preachers. I have a calling. I have a vocation. God has called me to preach. You know what the word calling means? Back in the day, it, it simply meant that, that, that the, a leader or somebody very important would send you an invitation to do a project that you're really good at for them. If you're a, you were a good artisan, you're a good artist, the king might send you an invitation and say, you know, uh, Kate, the great artist, uh, or Andrew, because you are an artist, let me do that, Andrew, the artist... Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, I want you to paint one of those watercolor things you do for me. And, and that would be a calling because Andrew is not doing that for money. He's not doing that for... He is doing that because the king asked him to do it. He's doing it for the king. And this is what it means in your life. Listen, God calls you to fulfill a certain vocation work-wise. You may be a lawyer. You may be a doctor. You may be a, a, you know, work with electricity. You may be a, a electrician. You may be a um, computer programmer. I don't know what you're going to do. You may be a school teacher. You may be whatever. But I want you to say, God's called you to do that. And, and it's, it's not enough to just go, well, I'm just going to do my job and just get through it. No, no, God says, look, learn to worship him in what you do. Learn that our lives are not just worship on Sunday morning. It's not just worship when we take a little quiet time every morning to read our Bible and pray and sing a few songs to the Lord. No, worship is how we do our work. It's how you do it. How good a job you do. How hard you work at it. How, how, how you improve. And he's saying, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do your work that way. And so this is what Paul is, is telling these guys. This is what, we, we know what we don't want to look like. We know what dirty clothes are. We know what greed and immorality and anger and bitterness. Get those clothes off. But what clothes do we put on? Here's a summary. Here's the clothes you put on. Number one is put on the clothes of love. Be a lover. Be a forgiver. Be gentle to people. Be compassionate. You know, reciprocate the love of God. 
And the second thing it's real important to do is, God, is that you and I let the Word of God dwell in us richly. We really absorb God's Word. And we absorb a personal interaction with God in this life. We love, but we also interact with God and we absorb His truth. And we, we let that lift us and feel us. And the third thing we do is we, we love God through our work through what you do in life. If you're a student, through your studies. If you're a businessman or woman or person or whatever you're doing in the workforce as a man or woman, do that really well. Worship through that. Don't do that just for a boss. Don't do that just for a paycheck. Do it for God as his dearly loved children. See, God created you to be that vocation. Just as a dad may be proud of you if you're a great lawyer, doctor, musician, whatever it may be, you know, God is proud of the kind of worker, kind of person you are. And that's what it means to do this. I'm going to close with this thought. You know, there are a lot of abilities you and I may have that, that are really important and they're really precious, but there is one ability you have that is the most sacred ability of all and that is you have the ability to please God you have the ability to make God smile to make his heart swell with pride and I want to encourage you to do that and be that in life a child, a dearly loved child, makes his father proud. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these uh, just powerful truths that you gave to the Apostle Paul years ago. And we just see sort of the linear trends. And, and uh, it's, it's cool to see how there, there are certain truths we have and truths we protect. And how we implement these truths in our life to... to represent you well in this life and to, in this sort of a crazy way, affect you and uh, emotionally put a smile on your face and to uh, help you be a proud father. And we hope that you'll do that. I hope in all our lives, God, that you will be proud of each child in here of yours with the, the way we live, the way we worship, and with the way we work. And we uh, thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.